0: Welcome everyone to another of Shared Ireland's podcast. Today we'll be having a conversation with a lady who was born in County Galway. She has an honours degree in international relations and has a master's degree in law. She has worked in Bangladesh, Haiti and Zambia. She was elected to Belfast City Council in 2011 before becoming an MLA. It gives Shared Ireland great pleasure to welcome along Claire Hanna from the SDLP. Welcome, Claire.
1: Thank you, thanks for having me.
0: No problem. And thank you for giving up some of your time today because I believe you were up in Stormont this morning. Um, Welcome our new Prime Minister, Uh, Boris Johnson to- uh, No, no, I was up in
1: Stormont (laughs) and uh, uh, by coincidence, I I wasn't, uh, no, I wasn't there for that meeting, but I did see the the circuses in town with all The, the- The circus? Yeah, the cameras and all that kind of stuff, yeah.
0: Very good. And you don't do circuses, no?
1: I'm trying with juggling, maybe with... Uh...
0: <laughs> Claire, I alluded there at the introduction that you were born in Galway. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about that, and I suppose maybe when you're at it, what your background is, what your early years was like, and maybe what shaped your political thinking?
1: Yeah, um, yeah I was born uh, just in, in Connemara, just about sort of 10 miles outside of Galway. Um, I'm the youngest of four, and my next sister up was born in Galway too, and the older two in Dublin, my parents are from uh, dads from Belfast, West Belfast, and mum's from Warren Point, but they had lived down south from about 75 to 85, and yeah, so my dad dad was working for Uderost and Giltacht in, um, as I say, in Connemara. We had a glorious few years um, there, and when we moved to Belfast in 1984, um, my dad had taken a job as General Secretary of the SDLP. You kind of, sometimes they go what exactly were you thinking bringing four children under 10 to belfast in the 80s and i yeah. think it was supposed to be a fairly temporary move and we actually ended up holding on to the house uh, in galway and anyway it it, it wasn't uh, it, it ended up um, being a, a lot longer but we still have kind of strong connections in galway and i'm up and down fairly frequently throughout um the the year um but yeah just uh, i mean it's a, it's a it's a it's a great spot, but um, I get to deny Belfast if it's worse and go oh no no I'm sure I'm from Galway. But, <coughs> yeah, but to be fair, I've spent sort of seven or eight times as many years living in Belfast.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I also mentioned in my introduction there you have an honours degree in international relations. That sounds like a, a pretty decent qualification. You, to have, you made it sound job.
1: you made it sound terribly impressive there. Well, to, I am. Um, at, at uh, 18, after school, I went to school in South Wales, I uh, actually knew everything. I had literally nothing to learn of at course, that age. Like of so, all. So, yeah, so I took, um, I kind of knew uh, at that point university wasn't for me, and... Um, uh, I just wanted to get it into work. I just wanted to be kind of earning money and doing stuff. And then I did touch lucky for a couple of interesting jobs over, um, you know, over those years. So it was sort of in my late 20s. I went back and did the degree Very with good. the Open University, which I loved, I must say. It's a great way to great way to learn great way to get a qualification great way to fit it in with you know work life with family life mm-hmm. um and i was i was ready to learn if you know what i mean whereas um when i was 18 i just probably wasn't that exactly. interested yeah and then after that a couple of years afterwards 2014 15 16 did did the master's in, no. in law and governance at, at at queens and actually was just finishing that I was just about to start my dissertation when i went into the assembly so that was a hectic couple of months sort of winding up my old job and getting the dissertation written and trying to find my feet in the in the assembly. But again, you know, I think when you're a bit older, you probably are more focused. You've got a bit of sort of onboard knowledge just from mm-hmm. living in the world and Life. in the workplace and stuff. And just yeah, so I loved
0: it. And tell me a little bit about Bangladesh, Haiti and Zambia.
1: Yeah, I worked for Concern Worldwide for uh for for more or less 10 years I started um, I had worked before for for Comic Relief for um, looking after the Red Nose campaigns for a couple of years and then um, yep, started a a 3 month contract with Concern looking after an education project um, about people living with HIV and AIDS and then kind of ended up staying there for 10 years in different roles in Mm -hmm. campaigns and advocacy and, and some media and in that time I had the opportunity to go out uh, in in Zambia and Bangladesh, it was traveling with journalists and showing them, um, you know, the the work that we're doing, the work indeed that kind of is funded by, um, uh, you know, work fundraising in Ireland and in Haiti it was uh, I was doing a kind of a review after the earthquake you remember mm-hmm. in in, okay. uh, in 2010 obviously huge amounts of money um, was put t- towards a rehabilitation effort and it was writing up a lot of it from the EU and from the Irish government and from UK government and I spent quite a bit of time there just pulling together evidence and, and documenting some of the work that we be done but I tell you what there is nothing that gives you a sense of scale and proportion than, mm. than, than overseas development work, and I suppose you know how you how you do public services uh, in in really challenging environments. Well,
0: would I be right in saying that that type of work was more than a job for you? That it was a passion?
1: Oh yeah, I mean I, I think yeah, absolutely, and I suppose I've been lucky in the with jobs that I've had that you do. I don't know. Yeah, things that sort of make you tick and that you do feel you're 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 contributing to some sort of positive change. Making a difference. Yeah, yeah, during the working day. And and I, I was lucky enough to just to thoroughly enjoy them and find them professionally stimulating as well and
0: mm-hmm. you know. okay very good uh, you mentioned there that the reason why your father took the family up to belfast was to become what member yeah, of the general secretary which is kind of you, know, you know which i suppose brings me on to my next question was the sdlp always going to be the party of your choice yes or you know i'm assuming your father didn't um, didn't suggest the party but because he was in the SDLP, it just was a natural choice?
1: I grew up in, a, in, in a, a political household. Dad had been involved in um, civil rights before that. My mum was a nurse by background and then kind of in her latter half of her working life went into social work. So it was kind of, again, public service was always a big part of the ethos and they were both my mum was an sdlp councillor and then mla as well she first ran in the mid 90s and um retired in 2009 and so you know politics was always around Mm -hmm. uh, and we had a lot of you know big political characters in and out of the house and we did spend a lot of time you know stuffing envelopes and, and and leafleting and all that kind of stuff so it was definitely um say considered a noble and an honourable thing to do and the SDLP ethos that basically of work in the common ground Um, that you know whatever our, our, our maybe different, different and potentially competing identities we all share this uh, patch. I grew up in South Belfast in probably what's still one of the most integrated neighbourhoods in. Uh, in Belfast, and that that has definitely shaped my outlook, um, mm. as, as well. So yeah, and I mean, I was kind of involved in the SDLP, just you know, helping out, and then it was probably in my mid late 20s that I got more involved independently and you sort of you know you want to kind of shape the policy a wee bit more and at that age I was just getting a bit more interested in the nitty gritty of local stuff as well about you know your local local services and stuff Mm -hmm. so um I I must say I wasn't somebody who was always kind of you know working towards or hanging out for a political career as I say I was enjoying my own work and I was just I was enjoying my life basically but um yeah I ran for council in 2011 when I was just kind of probably just turned 30 or, or going 30 but um, I know I know it's okay <laughs> because, um, because these things are in Wikipedia in this line of work they are. There's, no, there's nowhere to hide there's nowhere to um, hide but um, yeah but it wasn't it wasn't you know and I, it wasn't a this is always what I'm going to do. And I was really keen not to take over my mum's council seat. When she stepped down from council, you know, I was very involved. I think it was the chair of the branch, but I said, look, I definitely don't want to do that. I don't want to do. And it was a couple of years later. And similarly, when she stepped down from the assembly, Mm -hmm. um, you know obviously we were you know blessed with a lot of talent in the in the constituency so it wasn't you know mine by default or anything yeah. but it was very important to me that I did go out and win those seats myself and you know in the first rehearsals. instance yeah, yeah yeah very
0: good right that brings me along nicely Claire to um in February of this year you resigned the party whip after the SDLP agreed to form an electoral alliance with Fianna Foyle you also quit as the party's Brexit spokesperson I suppose there's several questions that I would like to ask you, but one of them would be: Do you still? I suppose do you still feel that you have a connection with the SDLP? Do you still feel comfortable in the party continuing?
1: Look, I'm I'm still a member of the SDLP, and I'm still fully subscribed to the the principles and objects and the the, the history and ethos of the party, and that hasn't changed. And I'm still uh, work very closely, particularly with my local. Uh, councillors and local constituency uh, uh, organization and you know I made very clear I, I, I don't support the exclusive partnership with Foyle. I, I, I never did I kind of I think I signaled that fairly um, clearly and it's not um, though it's fair to say Foyle wouldn't be my political home if I was operating down south it's not um, you know a rejection of that party I just have always believed that you know having good relationships with all of the parties and sort of being the common ground in in, in in democratic Ireland was was a good place to exist, particularly with all that's you know coming our way in the next in the next lot of years. But no, I mean I haven't I haven't changed my mind on that. But I still share values and history with the, the SDLP very much so, and I still work very closely, particularly in South Belfast.
0: Can can we just suppose maybe push you on on your? resignation of the party whip. What was, if you had to give me one answer, what was the main single thing that didn't sit comfortably with you?
1: Well it was the fact that we would be in an exclusive relationship with Fianna which to my mind means repudiating uh, our links with with Labour and indeed with Fine Gael. and and I think it was elevating um, that one relationship and as I say um, I think it was narrowing the platform on which the SDLP stood because even if you look at it and again Finnoyler are 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 doing well did well in the local elections and polling well you know but they're still only speaking for around about a quarter of the southern electorate and there's a wider political worldview there that I didn't think. Um, would be be closed off and as i say it wasn't my own natural political home but it's fair to say that while you know my political home and if i was operating in the south would be in the labour party i've never sought to merge the sdlp and the labour party either i I just i think that pluralism Mm -hmm. is always the best way um, of operating
0: what was the feedback that you got personally when you kind of made your views known on the merger you know how did your family and friends or maybe other party colleagues what did they say to you as an individual? Look,
1: you know, it's a, it's a kind of a, a, a mixed bag and obviously a lot of my family and friends would be political people and a lot would have shared the same uh, analysis as i had on, on this issue a lot of course would be strongly sdlp and, and very you know feel you know the, the the tightness of of the sdlp as a family and, and as i said people were obviously maybe upset that there was tension um within that and in terms of you know constituents and neighbors and stuff yeah mixed bag i think most people in fairness say well you know you got to be true to yourself and um, there would be, I also don't think it would have been, um, you know, authentic for me to have made quite clear my views uh, on it. And, and I did that. Um, not to put a fly in the ointment, but I was seeking to change the outcome. I was seeking before the membership, um, you know, discussed it. I, I, yeah. I was seeking to to put forward an alternative. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it would have been authentic for me then to say, well, you know, I'm kind of, you know, over it. But, but like I say, it's kind of on on very many policies and on kind of long term, uh, achievement of of shared aims. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not off the reservation as such we just um, you know things are in a and I see where the SDLP leadership were trying to get to with it we're in a very difficult place politically and the platforms and the outputs and the ways that you can influence policy and change Mm. outcomes for your constituents are very limited and closed off to us and I can see why it made sense the rationale was there for some people it just it doesn't sit with my own politics. You,
0: You mentioned there that you can see where the SDLP and I suppose the leadership were coming from and it, you've just brought a thought to my head do you think the fact that the sdlp currently have no meps have no mps and without meaning to sound um, mlas are locked out yeah you're yeah of yeah. course of course do you, you do think they were trying to maybe um i suppose make themselves more relevant by joining what they would say a bigger party absolutely
1: absolutely and i can see the logic of yeah. that uh, position and i can absolutely see the logic of uh, an all-island dimension, and I think increasingly, um, and 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 where we're all going to politically, um, I I think that makes sense. But I don't think this was the only way to do it. I yeah. mean, I know just as it happens, just by taking up invitations, like I've been. Speaking at events in in just around in Dublin and Wexford and Cork and Galway and Donegal over the last few months, and trying to participate in that conversation, mm-hmm. I just I don't think that was the only way yeah. to do all animals. But I don't want to dwell on that. By the, I don't want because I don't like to get into. I'm not I'm not dismissing that aspect of the conversation, but I do want to get into the the, the substance of it. You know, in in some ways we just disagree on the yeah. on the
0: yeah.
1: technical technicalities.
0: And to put this. Um, going to file a question to bed finally question looking, five look, <laughs> <laughs> looking back now would you do the same thing again
1: uh, yeah i haven't well, changed my view okay. so I, I genuinely try to go as far as possible with my gut on things and be honest about where i stand on things so yeah I'm, i can't imagine it would have i would have i can't imagine any scenario where i would have taken a different course of action okay
0: that question was now firmly prepared,
1: okay i'll yeah, bring it up accidentally over something like that.
0: <laughs> Recently uh, Claire you spoke at the McGill Summer School and you said and I quote hopefully accurately here a border poll should be the last and not the first piece of the jigsaw and I'm assuming your key point here was preparation is everything and that must come first. Mm -hmm. How do you see this preparation taking place Claire and should a new all iron Forum be set up to discuss and formulate a plan a way forward, or can you expand on that? Yeah, for well, us?
1: firstly, I have to confess, and I went actually after the fact after I'd said it. Um, and Google. I heard that phrase, I think it was Alex Salmond actually who said that, that, that years back, I remember reading what I thought was a very good speech, that basically you don't, and I firmly believe this, you don't go, right, let's put the question and then let's put everything in place. You you, you do the preparatory work I and mean, in the same speech I outlined a lot of the ways that, that you do that. One of which is, and the primary one should have been use the institutions, people like John Hume and Seamus Mallon knocked their pants in to get, right? So the north-south dimension yeah. in both Sunningdale and then in the Good Friday Agreement, which finally stuck, they really, like that was the hill they nearly died on in terms of getting that into mm-hmm. the into the the structures, a strong mechanism by which to advance north-south working and by which to synchronize our economies and by which to, to, to integrate and unite people. And I don't believe they have been effectively used if you i mean there's a few advances ironically in the health that were under the up minister and obviously some that have happened by the market and then some around things like energy but there are loads of what you could see as low-hanging fruit that i don't mm-hmm. think have been pursued now i'm not saying it was completely straightforward and but i don't think i i i'm, I'm open to correction here but somebody can show me you know 10 20 years of loads of things people have tried to do uh, that haven't worked out uh, but I don't I don't think people have, have, have utilized those and basically the way now obviously brexit does accelerate and put an entirely different uh, complexion on the conversation but really what you should be doing is people should you should integrate those services around border areas and then in further ways and europe was doing a lot of that and then people should you look around and say we're operationally united people are in the same place kind of you know culturally and in their worldview. let's put the question it's a bit like you know i'm not going to do any twee marriage analogies but you know you get to know one another first and you build up a relationship you don't in my book do an arranged marriage mm-hmm. that uh, and then or set the date and then start to get to know uh one another and to do that preparatory work and otherwise otherwise and, and the, the point i made is that you don't build a modern pluralist country on on kind of slipping it through in a period of chaos and fear where you then potentially have a very sizable minority feeling perhaps the way that the nationalist minority felt in the years and decades of potentially century after uh, partition that's not a good start if uh, if you can help it the other thing i kind of and i'll come to your question certainly about the new ireland forum which was in the same speech is about the tone and as i say um i I live a reasonably north south life in that I you know up and down to Galway a lot. I'm married to a Dubliner, so we're obviously up and down to the in laws a lot, and have just a lot of friends. And I you know I sort of you know just tune into. Uh, Southern media yeah. d- daily, so do live, uh, and as I say, more formally in the last few months, doing a lot of those speaking events. Mm-hmm. The South's in a very different place. People mm-hmm. are, um, if we're relying on a, a border poll, a referendum passing in the South, just on the back of you know solidarity and people's feeling towards it, we're not necessarily going to get there. People are understandably getting on with their lives, trying to you know get through their jobs, raise their families, all you know. So people aren't automatically going to go for it if we as the north are always projecting mm-hmm. tension and hostility and cost and saying you abandon us and now you've got to take us back in and all that kind of stuff so the tone and then the third is absolutely uh, a new ireland forum or something in that vein that actually and what it did the the new ireland forum back in the day and i uh, i'm the proud owner of pristine copies now of the reports and the proceedings that my dad had kept i mentioned yeah. a couple of months ago when he Border that he is pulled them out. It just put loads of good facts into the conversation you know kind of whereas before people are doing independent reports or people are extrapolating on two sets of figures it basically gives you like credible authenticated numbers it had really good stuff on for example integrating legal systems the boring detail that would have to be uh, reconciled so yes i think so but i have a lot of sympathy for the argument that in the middle of the conversation about brexit you would totally play into the hands of the brexiter narrative that this is all a unity move and all that kind of stuff um to to suddenly say and in parallel we're doing the unity conversation would be politically bad and it would be practically bad on two grounds everybody's preparing For Brexit, right? Mm -hmm. All the bandwidth in in officialdom in Dublin is working on Brexit contingency scenario planning, all that kind of stuff. And secondly, we don't know what we're dealing with. All of that baseline factual stuff will depend on whether we do have a, a the same you know, tariff regime, we do have the same regulations. So, you know, in terms of the politics and in terms of the practicalities of delivering it and in terms of where we're starting from, in terms of that factual basis, it makes sense to do it when we know what we're looking at. It.
0: Speaking, as I do, in the nature of going around interviewing people like yourself, Claire, Republicans and nationalists, there I say, would say that when people criticise nationalists now, saying that a border poll should not be talked about because Brexit is the most pressing subject. Their response to that would be, they have been calling for a border poll for the past hundred years, and just bear with me here. Mm -hmm. So they would find it nearly offensive that they should not be allowed to look for what they've right. always so, been looking for
1: i have to nail this right every time no, i know anytime i mention this publicly or any other uh, any other sdlp politicians or any you know whether it's finna labor finna they'll go what do you say we can't talk about nobody has said you can't talk about it what the message has very clearly been is don't put the car before the horse, why is it always talking about set the date, set the date, set the date and not do the preparatory work? So I must say this kind of because I got swarmed by Twitter accounts. why are you saying we can't talk about it? I'm like, did you read the speech? It was you know, 2,000 words of how we talk about it and how we advance the conversation and that has been the same. People like Colin Eastwood, people like Micheal Martin, people like Leo Verheader when they've said, you know, this is, you know, we need to talk about the framework and I think Particularly from Sinn Féin, I think their their kind of pitch is any time somebody mentions it, say, stop shutting us down. But it's not. It's just saying, why does have the vote always have to be the policy? Similarly, for many years, the Brexiters kind of, it was always put the vote, put the poll, put the poll, and not, you know, what we would do outside Mm -hmm. Europe. And we have come to the point where Mm -hmm. they got their one wish of the vote and they don't know what to do with it.
0: Okay. There is a New Ireland forum set up. Next week, for example. Is yes, there? No. Oh, for right, sorry, I genuinely. Sorry. For sorry. You believe sorry. me there. I did not receive an email about
1: this. No, but, uh, no, no this? you're right. Yes, for, okay. For no. example, yeah. sorry. Say, for example, we've got I, the Brexit stuff. I, I should have used that. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, have, sorry. Yeah. I should
0: have put example in first.
1: I was raging there. I didn't know. it. <laughs>
0: how, how would you, as a nationalist leader, um, if I may call you that, um, bring unionism to this table? Because yep. obviously, if it's called... A new Ireland forum, if it's called whatever. Language is very important, and I suppose you know we don't want to put um, our neighbours off before we even get to the table. So, how would you frame that, Claire?
1: And and actually, uh, a a friend of mine who is a unionist and an active practising unionist unionist, turned this conversation on me before when it was something, I think it was the Taoiseach's All Island Forum on Brexit a couple of years ago, and I was kind of joshing about, why aren't you? And he said, if I invited you to come to a forum on reimagining the union in the next century, would you be dying about it? And no, I would not. So we have to accept where people are for a start. This is fundamentally um, where... Uh, you know, this is something some unionists are fundamentally ill disposed to. There are others, absolutely, that are up for the conversation yeah. for uh, pragmatism. So we have to accept that. I think some of the um, let's have the conversation can be a bit patronising. That Yoni wanted, you know, let's have the conversation, but these are my terms. Exactly. And by the way, this is the end date when we're going to be pushing yes. you for an answer. Um, so I think it should be about looking at, you know, this is this is fact-finding at this point mm-hmm. and about how we can improve the outlook for all of us. Some of that is going to be, again, about being open about the format. And again, if you look back to the New Ireland Forum, people like John Hume and Gareth Fitzgerald were very creative about the constitutional um, configuration, i.e. doesn't necessarily have to be unitary, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So be honest that those those things are up for grabs. But I suppose... Um, convening it from a, a position of trust, where the strand one relationship is still working, and I think at the moment, if nationalism says get only to the north south dimension, you know that we've checked out of the assembly, we've checked out of the uh, the strand one institutions. That's not coming from a position of trust. We're saying basically we're moving on without you. So that's mm-hmm. why I very strongly feel that you need to get the institutions up and running, Mm -hmm. uh, and as I say, utilise that, structures for Northern Ireland, structures for North South, structures for East West, and I think there's a huge amount from all quarters of selectively quoting the Good Friday Agreement, Mm -hmm. you know, the DUP saying, well, it's against the Good Friday Agreement at the backstop, you know, it's against the Good Friday Agreement to say we can't have a border poll tomorrow, you know, could we all talk about all of the parts of the Good Friday Agreement, including the bits that don't suit uh, our argument? So, and then the other thing would be about framing uh, our politics in the in the improvement of people's lives and not just starting every sentence with as a nationalist this and as a unionist that and and try and move it onto the ground Mm -hmm. of where, um, you know, our our well-being and our economic interests could be. And it's worth saying, and I kind of made this point on Talkback in the last couple of days that, you know, it is frustrating to hear from unionists Uh, who are very glib about Brexit and about, you know, the union is safe because everybody's economic interests are served in the union um, and, you know, that'll always be the case and we'd be gambling it all if we went into Irish unity and then in the same breath advocate a no deal that would crash that, so, you know, again uh, we have to accept that there are going to be some people who aren't going to be enthusiastic about it, but one if you convene it from a place of trust and stability with the other institutions it limits their excuses, whereas now they can say well how long we're dealing with all these other things and secondly i suspect you'd find like the brexit conversation wider uh, society in terms of business agriculture civil society including hopefully you know many people of a unionist background as have turned into the Brexit conversation people would participate so you would be getting mm-hmm. a fuller um, you know set of views and then ultimately I would hope that that would um, entice
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, stroke pressure and um, some of the more liberal uh, elements of, of political unionism.
0: Okay uh, I'm going to pose you one question here that I have um, got this from speaking to people like Alex Key and mm-hmm. Doug Beatty and Mike Nesbitt. Mm-hmm. How can unionism and their British culture be protected in a new Ireland, how, how can you reassure yeah. them okay. as an SDLP leader?
1: So first of all, I think we're always really narrow about how we talk about our culture. You know, Irish culture isn't just traditional music and, and kind of, you know, uh, Pints of Guinness. And Pints of Guinness and, and, and kind of poetry in the Irish language and British culture isn't just bonfires and, and kind of, like as I say I was in Galway last week in the Galway Arts Festival and I kind of you know it did occur to me this is Irish culture you know very kind of um, uh, diverse set of you know global artists music of every genre mm-hmm. you know poetry literature so you know and similarly um you know well I haven't been for a few years but if i go to glasgow or something they go that's british culture as well you know and if you take a maximalist look at say you know do you remember that thing before the London Olympics the Danny Boyle being tallow? Yes. I mean you know so that if you look at British culture in that and that that's something that could absolutely be facilitated in a new uh, in a new Ireland but of course when we have the conversation here we're only talking about the flaggy elements of our culture um and I suppose some of it um into and I think Seamus Mallon in his in his book actually which Uh, like a lot of things gets caught on you know the one big headline figure there's a lot of really good stuff there about relationships and and about operations but he said you know we do have to be um we do have to be understanding of things like marching and even potentially other displays in terms of flags and stuff And, and i suspect we'll come on to that um as well but it's basically not sneering um at aspects of it and one thing um that, again, somebody reminded me of in Donegal. Do you remember a few years ago, there was maybe like two years ago, one of the royal princes was getting married, and I don't know the date, I can't remember when, I can't remember, I think it was Harry, and, uh, you know, there was obviously interest in it, and his wife is, is well-known in the reglamers and all that kind of stuff. I say I have at best polite interest in in, in in either the royals or celebrity culture, right? But some people were into it and it was on TV and a hotel in Donegal did an afternoon tea where you could come and view the proceedings and okay. wire the dresses and people like, I think, I can't remember if it got picketed or there was somebody like, yeah. you know, sneering about it in yeah. the media. That is the exact opposite of how you do it. So, I mean, it's again, taking a broader uh, picture of, of of what culture is, um, but I think uh it's it's particularly the more benign aspects and and i have a very different view on things like marching than a lot of people i've lived as i say nearly all my life in south belfast and for pretty much all of that time i've been fewer than 50 yards from a main parade route and live and let live i mean i don't i don't love it um and the only the only parade i've ever uh, objected to for me in my life was at the uda uh memorial parade here on the ormond road a few years ago about 2015 um and in general if people. People operate within a number of rules, you know, around, you know, behavior on the day and and, and kind of, you know, paramilitary trappings, and again, i've spoken a lot about stuff like clean up and toilets and all that practicality stuff Mm -hmm. live and let live it's not and i can see the positive aspects for people i can see you know that aspect of performing and music and 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 the community day out that it is and people catch up with their mates and i have watched those parades by close proximity i've also in my time uh, been to an 11th night bonfire it was when my husband first moved up here from dublin about 15 years ago with you know, a wide-eyed interest and innocence about the North. He was like, I want to go to one. And some friends took us along. People weren't, you know, everybody there was, a kind of, you know, weren't there to kind of kick the Pope and do the takes down. It was a night out. It was like, you know, being to a, you know, being to a kind of a dodgy music concert or something, you know, it wasn't. So, so it, it's accepting that everybody's not doing those things to poke you in the eye. That's just part of the things that they do.
0: You mentioned bonfires there. I did. How does the burning of election posters, um, how does that make you feel when you see them on the likes of because we're still in the month of July here, um, how does that make you feel um, when you see it on 12th of July bonfires from a human aspect of it here and I know I appreciate maybe your poster has been up, all our nationalist parties and even I believe the Alliance party Mm -hmm. posters have been up.
1: Well, I think in the first instance, it's disgusting, it's regressive, it's environmentally damaging. Also, as an extremely um, miserly person, I go, Rip's sake, they're £6 each. I got three elections out of my 2010 posters. And I've got two and counting out of the ones I got done for the 26. So I'm meticulous about taking them down and putting them in the shed and using them again because one, they are hard plastic; they're difficult to recycle and they're expensive. So and when I've seen a couple of mine, I've been annoyed in that uh, in in that regard. But it it is it is total coat trailing. There's absolutely no defence for it, and as I say, um, when it's not posters, I had a big, I'm allowed to swear in this podcast, on the Sandy Road Bonfire in 2016. um, uh,
0: Glenn Bradley and John Somebody's somebody's,
1: um, somebody's mummy sheet had uh, Councillor Hannah Fuck Off uh, written at the very top of the Sandy Road Bonfire, and I think... 2016 and 17 probably because I was so prompt getting my posters down um so yeah there's just I mean there's it's absolutely indefensible in terms of personally you know it's again I can imagine the scenario where it's not everybody you know it's not everybody in the community it's not that you're you know they're all gonna burn our posters it's some dick at the end mm-hmm. um uh puts it puts it in and you'd probably imagine some of the children bond, building the bonfire you know wouldn't be able to pick you out of a lineup but no. yeah obviously it's it's designed to be a big two fingers uh and yes i mean I it's, it's kind of hurtful but it's not personally i don't kind of go oh, they don't love me. you know you just it, it's, you don't lose it's, much it's, sleep over it. no i don't lose much i mean i lose i lose sleep over the enormous damage to community relations that's done on that yeah. as i say when it has veered into a couple of years ago, like Polish flags and stuff, I think that I think there are communities that are probably you know much more vulnerable to it than me. I kind of know it's a little bit of it's part of the job that people people will you know do stuff. So, people will talk stuff about you online. People will make stuff up. People will you know throw brickbats in that way. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an absolutely indefensible practice.
0: Uh, Another summer, clear and another row about flags, and you have been quite critical of the Soldier F flags recently. How should society, and I suppose maybe councillors, approach and tackle this issue?
1: Yeah, I've actually, I've, I've kind of evolved my thinking on this a wee bit, and I'll explain. I mean, in terms of the Soldier F stuff, which is basically saying we support Soldier F, basically to me says we support the you know unlawful killing of our neighbours and that was deeply offensive and if you've spent any time uh, either reading or as I have sitting in, in some of the, in the, in the Ballamurphy inquest or some of the material that we've seen from uh, Bloody Sunday and in terms of what people are saying they support, it's so offensive and you can just imagine putting yourself in the shoes of, of, of somebody who lost somebody there and, and similarly with paramilitary flags, I just think there should be zero tolerance because um, as well as being intimidating, it's The message that we're sending out on law and order, whenever uh, the the emblems of criminal gangs can fly unmolested, and if you're somebody who is, you know, being intimidated or being shaken down for money, or you know, your kids being sold drugs by these people or whatever, what confidence are you going to have going to the police about it if if you know they're allowed to dominate public space for months? Can can, can I just stop you on,
0: on that particular thing? Is is that recently I'm aware that somebody kind of tested this and they went to the council, the local council, and they, they asked what can be done to take down what they deemed mm. to be offensive flags in their area. Yeah. The council told them to go to the police. Mm-hmm. They went to the police, the police said they can't deal with it, yep. go, go to the road authorities. And just, yep. well, yeah, no, I'm just, you know what I'm doing no. with I do. They went to the road authorities and the road authorities told them to go back to the, the council. Mm-hmm. So they've been sent on a full circle, mm-hmm. and it's called passing the book. It well, that's is. How, it is. Well, that's how it seems. Why can legislation yeah, not well, be drafted, and and can, why can it, as well as not being drafted, why can it not be, uh, why cannot well, be put through? I'm, I'm <laughs> glad you asked me
1: that, and exactly that it is. It is a past part. It is a past book. I must say, excuse me, I've got sympathy for some of those uh, organisations, same way as I do for the housing executive and fires and stuff for building their land. Because you do want to say, look, enforce it, but the legislation as it stands is really shaky and these are political problems and we shouldn't, you know, politicians, it's our job to sort out, we can't outsource it to every little, say, every housing association has to design their own policy. Um, so in, and if any of your uh, listeners are interested, Google, Hansard and South Belfast adjournment and Claire Hannah MLA and Flags, I brought a debate just a couple of months before the collapse, just at the end of... 2016 to try and deal with this issue and start the ball rolling, like outside of the heat of summer, you know, after flagging season has completed, you know, so that we're not having this conversation on Twitter or Nolan where we're shouting each other's heads off to kind of say, and as when I said my thinking has evolved, I was and you know, instinctively am, you know, zero tolerance, get it down in the public space. But again, I accept you know like i say i grew up in parts of lisberg road and they went up a week or two before the 12th and they came down about a week after and i could live with that right it's not it's 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 live and let live it didn't dominate the space for months and months and months on end so if we got to a situation like that then i think we could kind of rub along in the same way as you know uh GA clubs, soccer clubs might have something up, or we might have something up for Pride, or we might have something up for the mailer or whatever, but you need it, you need a framework in place for that. So we proposed a, a legislation where basically I would say, Yeah, you know, um, you know, blah, blah blah such and such a club, we've got to such and such a thing. I want to put them up in this area and these dates, and I would have my name down and I would be the responsible person, a bit like the Parades Commission, uh, and and you would be engaging with it and they would kind of make an adjudication. Now, um that's I mean that's a that's a starter for 10 again it's about regulating not banning and we did something similar Mm -hmm. on bonfires when I was first in the assembly my colleague Mark H Durkin who is environment minister said right I'm not going to ban them I know they're not for me but they are for other people so it's not saying you can't have them but there's going to be rational metrics on how high it can be what you can't burn how many months of the year you can take up the local green so basically what I'm saying is a, a, a system where they can go up on key parade routes for the big day or for I don't know, the queen's jubilee or something but you don't get to own the space um with boys with scarves over their faces putting them up um and, and not taking them down and and i think the self-regulation and there was a, a flags protocol hasn't worked it's been breached there's paramilitary flags there's flags You know, on main thoroughfares and they stay up uh, too long so we do need a legislative framework and then once you have that then the authorities are empowered then when when the guy you were speaking to rings the road service they can say here's a piece of legislation, Uh, nobody put their name to these flags and you can take them down and you can face them down but until that is the case each uh, each as I say each public body has to chart their own course because the legislation isn't there at the moment. What is there is that if I put up something advertising a disco or my lost cat or something it's a planning regulation same way as if you leave an election poster up they can get you on know commission. This, this
0: seems to be uh, one of the, the problems is that if people I won't I,
1: engage in the rational if, debate If I do
0: go and put a poster up for the Samaritans mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. a disco or a charity some exactly. reason. The council will take them down without exactly. hesitation, and the, it seems to be the double standard and the, it's a the total leg. double standard yeah. of as
1: in not facing down these thugs. Well, you remember a few years ago in Ballyclare I think it was, the cops went did go in and take down flags, and I don't know, perhaps they were paramilitary flags, and it was written. And basically, when we uh, when we kind of give in to stuff, like who are we saying is in charge? Yeah, uh, and I think some of so as, as I say, you kind of. Technically it's easy to deal with. I suspect people don't want to engage in the conversation because once you do it for flags, then you know the same principle might apply to, you know, murals I and know. other memorial gardens and all that kind of stuff so I think people are shying away but I mean there's a way to deal with it and it's not all oh I will create a whole bureaucratic structure that gives teeth and power and then you say you don't engage with that they're coming down mm-hmm. and if you kick off we're putting you down you know it's kind of it's, it's basically it, it's this is the line this is the rule that we made and you will be uh, you will be made to adhere to it
0: what would you say to certain pretty vocal members on social media which will remain nameless on this podcast that by taking down these flags and by restrictions, putting restrictions on bonfires, that it's another sign of eroding their British culture.
1: Well, first of all, I would click the mute button uh, as I do and have done, and it, i mean, it's 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 nonsensical again. And and survey after survey, most people don't see that as an aspect of their identity, same way as burning tires and burning election posters isn't an aspect of an identity. And like I used because this conversation come up in one of the programs you know the Belsonic concerts were taking place in the own road that's part of people's culture and part of their identity in live music but they did it within rules you know they kind of the music went off at a certain time they had to provide port de loos and they had to pick up the rubbish and people had to adhere to basic uh, rules and, and nobody's culture was uh, eroded by uh, a half eleven music curfew and what would
0: be fair to say the argument just because it's been done for the past 40 years doesn't mean to say it's right
1: yeah absolutely 100%, 100%. And, and actually the point is this has spun out of control in recent years like I say I've lived here for for decades and it wasn't always this way in this in this constituency or others and I think you see I mean in fairness and I think I can understand if you are somebody who goes to the bonfire and goes to the marching at can feel like Jesus why is everybody breathing down her neck because a bit like parades the vast majority of them go off without contention yeah. right and the vast majority it might be a neighborhood but and you hear people saying look you know i'm a, I'm a catholic in our village i go along and it's not heat-filled. so you can understand people there feeling frustrated but nobody's trying to enforce that and i think uh, it's a few years since i've looked at the statistics but if you looked at the likes of the bonfire management scheme in city council like you know 30 bonfires were in that two or three were not mm-hmm. so those who aren't um you know taking the piss or are having their culture respected and in places facilitated
0: okay no problem tell me this do we need to sort out our legacy and our past before we can move forward claire and you know i suppose today um is wednesday the 31st of july that's when we're um having this podcast and it's the 44th anniversary of the miami showband massacre yeah. just to name yeah, one, just one. Um, and there's been many on all sides yeah, and i suppose it's important that we stress that on all sides can we honestly move forward before we deal and families are dying off and there is a perception out there possibly that by certain authorities, that's what they're hoping. For.
1: I don't think we meaningfully can. I mean, that's uh, like a lot of things. You know, we can we can do things in in uh, in parallel, but no, we can't. It's not it's not going to go uh, away, and people will you know that hurt will still emerge. And as you say, one, it is on all sides, and I do get annoyed at you know there are specific accounts on this day. Uda did this on this day, This day, the IRA did this. You know, it is. We do need. You know, a lost lives type resource where, you know, we shouldn't be so so hung up on what Demons did, dozens. You know, it's what everybody uh, did. But no, I, I agree with you. I think that uh, many actors are waiting and hoping for uh the victims to to disappear to die or to to behave like victims
0: and the problem with that And i think everybody's covering for each
1: other by the way on on that there's a you know if 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 truth and accountability and and um i would like to say remorse and contrition come out you know from all sides that creates a kind of a virtuous circle and other people have to
0: respond to it the the, the big problem that i see with waiting for people to die off yeah it doesn't it, it brings in a new generation yeah which makes it Worse because it keeps continuing and continuing Um, and continuing. I have
1: a friend who's um, Spanish, it was actually Conor McDevitt, he he was an MLA for this week and just. uh, really thoughtful guy but he was saying you know he grew up in spain and they literally after the civil war they were like let's never speak of this again and then around about his generation people are now going no, well what, what did happen to my dad or my grand or whatever and you can't you just can't bury it and again um not not systems i know inside out but if you look at you know rwanda is a pretty good example of it where they kind of um you know they kind of they, they people kind of have to put the truth out there and yeah. then if you did you kind of could move on you kind of got a pass and you kind of but but um the the situation of of not resolving it uh, is 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 just it's just going to keep bubbling up as i think somebody i can't remember it might be dennis bradley said the blood will keep seeping under the door and i think um worryingly every time. So if you look back to things like Eames Bradley, there were a lot of good structures in there that would address the different aspects that some people don't won't get justice. Some people don't necessarily want, uh, you know, justice to the judiciary stuff like the themes and patterns and the storytelling and just feeling like you're being heard. But each time a negotiation happens in a year, even you know, fresh start and has and all those, each time they go back into the room, it gets watered down, and victims aren't in the conversation, and what's being offered to them, um, in terms of all of those different remedies, um, is being watered down. So that's my worry uh, as well. It's not we're not. We're not getting
0: stronger on this. Claire, we're 45 minutes into the podcast here and I know you have got, um, unfortunately, appointments that you need to attend because there's a lot of these subjects that I would love to get into in more detail with you. I'm going to try and just slip in a couple quick ones here. Um, Assuming that Stormont and the current talks, um, which we won't go into because we can be here all week, would you and the SDLP be prepared to go back into an executive before the Irish language act, equal marriage, before yep. it's sorted out? Yep.
1: Well, I make very clear. Obviously, I'm not, you know, speaking for the SDLP on this. I, I suspect I don't diverge widely. I mean, the fact is, um, we're not, you know, going. Society isn't going to tolerate these issues not being addressed, but. We have the majority i think we need to remember the electorate took the veto off the dup in 2017 so we have the numbers on these equal my equal marriage is more of a slam dunk we could have it done tomorrow um uh, in, in in that regard and in terms of the irish language act yes there may have to be i mean again i i confess i'm not uh, I, I think we, we we need one the last two years have shown us how much we need one but i don't uh i'm not i am not completely prescriptive about what is in and what is out and I think that's part of the problem there isn't a depth of conversation on that but again there's a majority for, for, for rational provisions there so um, again the, the kind of magic bullet we sometimes portray it as in terms of uh, uh, petition of concern reform kind of addresses that and also addresses the next set of issues because at the moment it's equal marriage in Irish language and people might decide that they can't tolerate say trans rights and other identity rights so that's why you need to get the structures right yeah. so that we don't just you know get the plunger out and unclear this one and then another one um comes along so i don't think there's any scenario where uh you know this society is, is going and devolution's coming back where those issues aren't addressed
0: so, so just to be clear here speaking as you rightfully say on behalf of yourself yeah. from, the SLP, from your own personal view you would not be advocating come back under the old regime until these No, I don't think anybody is.
1: I think what I will say is I don't believe, and I've said this from the very start, I don't believe... Uh, doing it in this way it was the way to do it again we didn't um, the election that just passed got us our majority in fact before that election we had our majority uh, albeit with the DUP veto so we should have been going after the veto rather than going after the whole structure and similarly on on the Irish language and a lot of people have done a huge amount of work on this but it should have been clearer about what the ask was Mm -hmm. and then put the ask and then get a sense of where we are and one way that I don't think I mean even you know I don't think the starting Point was we know, and, and time and time again, over uh, the history of this place, if you say this is the line, if you put an identity issue in half of the people will run away from it and half of the people will run okay. towards it and we kind of always knew that was going to be the case and again kind of saying this is the line uh, creating I believe creating a situation where you said that you have to now say I like Irish Language Act and I like Gay Marriage much as we all want them to do that any reading of our recent history knows that we're thrown on both sides here if somebody says that's my demand. You have to now jump through. They, they won't. And I suppose the approach of going you human rights demand bastard is not going to endear. But uh, that's not in any way to let the DUP off the hook for regressive for, for behaviour. And I think they've got their answer um, from a broad societal uh, buy in to those, to those, uh, to those asks. So, so I will be very clear in terms of, uh, there's, there's just no question that they're going to go back unresolved. But you deal with the procedural flaws that will dog the next issue, mm-hmm. rather than just going into a wee room, cutting a deal on one of these issues or both of these issues. You mm-hmm. deal with the structure. And by the way, subject for another podcast of other, other, many other bits of tinkering we need to do in yeah. terms of the Good Friday Agreement to accommodate politics as we currently have it. And for example, the fact now of people don't identify primarily as unionists and nationalists and Mm. we need to accommodate them in the structures as well.
0: Okay, very quickly, uh, Claire, if you'll go with me on a little journey here. Mm. Assuming that the executive does get up and going, whenever that may be, will you and the SDLP take their seats at a working executive or will you be kind of, you know, more like what Mike and Colin suggested, you know, like an opposition? And just finally, (laughs) if you were offered a ministerial position, our brief. Mm. What would be best suited to you, do you think? Okay,
1: same caveat that this is a personal view yes, on it. Yes. Um, I think and I think this the, the, the line, no return to the status quo was a good one. My worry is through the likes of the talks last year that failed it was basically the status quo with a pretty Roby Irish language act. There was no real uh, sense of change around the structures and around um, the ethos of the executive which basically we can fill the chairs around the table but mm-hmm. not develop a sense of shared purpose. So I think things like that the operating protocols that you know ministers from smaller parties shouldn't go in and find the business has all been transacted by the spads two hours before so i think the sdlp and any other smaller party would need to see substantial changes and accepting you know that the last six months wasn't the only bad part of that executive it was rotten to the core it was corrupt it was uh, you know dividing up spoils and it had no real sense of shared purpose so i think the sdlp would need uh, and, and as I say, Alliance and, and UP and anybody else would, would need to get um, strong assurances in that. I think at this moment in time, the opposition, I thought, was the right thing to do at that time. We all believed and we were all told that the structures were solid as a rock and the relationships were solid as a rock. And it, we now know just how um, rotten that that assembly was and and the the opposition were beginning um, to show that and I think the opposition were beginning to show that an alternative was possible because any future government has to have power sharing at its core um, as well so I think that we need to get uh, assurances that I think it's fair to say after the pretty bumpy few years that we've had and we're not out of it yet I think people do want to see a sense of unity and shared purpose and it would be very difficult to imagine a scenario where the DUP and Sinn Féin patch it up to an extent I mean but but it is possible that Brexit kind of goes away or 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 we have the backstop or whatever and or some scenario where there aren't big winners and big losers Um, and I think for the other parties to basically just Firing shots across could be very difficult because we're all gonna have to suspend our disbelief Mm -hmm. to get this back. We're all gonna have to pretend that we haven't been here five times before Mm -hmm. with new beginnings. But we have to do that because you know we feel ungovernable, but we are being governed. Somebody in the here and now, one way or the other, there's no click your fingers, we're in our United Ireland, Mm -hmm. click your fingers we're back in the EU. In the here and now, somebody is making decisions about our lives, and we have to decide how we do that in a way that's count- accountable and a way that reflects the principles of the Good Friday Agreement. So, uh, yeah, I think I think I would like to find a scenario, but I would like the DUP and Sinn Féin to acknowledge the feelings, not just the feelings of them and the feelings of us as well, and. And, and commit to a culture change and not just I'm sorry uh, what, what ministerial position would oh God, you take I genuinely because again nobody's knocking my door and asking um, you know I think I think something like health it's not it's, it's a really deep area of policy that I, I don't claim any expertise in but it's something where you can meaningfully uh, affect change and I think we do have a culture of Resisting, uh, um, decision making. Yeah, health or education, but I, I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm ever going to be in line for one of those. They're certainly not in this. Uh, Your
0: Finally, last question. I promise you. Last week in Midulster, Denise Mone, a local councillor, resigned from a party over same-sex marriage, right. claiming yeah. that the leadership were forcing her to vote for it. She has subsequently joined Patter to new party into. Do you know anything about this and what would your views be on
1: Well look I don't actually other than what I mean I know what was online and what's in the public domain um, and the fact is the SDLP's um, position on gay marriage has been very clear for a long number of years and um, so I think that would have been very clear in, in the election that uh, Denise stood in and, and kind of she stood on that. Um, platform and there's room for maneuver on some issues but I think um, the issue of equal marriage is a fairly basic and uh, fundamental uh, right or wrong really um, and and as I say nobody was nobody had a had a wishy-washy policy it was very very clear and many people may have voted on that basis so look I don't' um, <coughs> Uh, you know, I don't want to pile on to people, but um, I, I don't think anybody can imply that they weren't clear about that policy in the last election or the one before that or the one before that.
0: Okay Claire, listen, um, I have other questions down here, for example, which we haven't time to go into today, like what damage has the RHI done to the DUP in Ireland Foster? Lots. I have lots, <laughs> okay. I have other questions like what would you say to young nationalists thinking of joining the PSNI? Um, yeah like what is social media a good or a well, bad platform done. um paint me a picture of well, your well when own. you work
1: through all the other guests i'd be glad to come back because they're yeah. all they're all excellent questions it was it was broader like extra sort of, yeah i think i need a i need a light on after all. <laughs> the, the breadth of the conversation there there was those, but but there, i'd be delighted to do it again there's one awesome. last
0: question that we always ask everybody if you could invite three people to your fictional dinner party dead or alive who would they be and why
1: I, I genuinely have and, and I kind of knew, because as I told you I'd, I'd listened to quite a few of them during the last couple of months Yes. Of, or, I always brought um, th- thank I,
0: you very much for taking time you know, they're, they're, well. they're
1: really good perfect buddy for for a long car journey or with um but uh yeah I haven't, thought, I, 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 haven't, I haven't thought about this I kind of at the moment I am reading another tony juke book he, I think he died actually as a an historian and author and kind of social democratic background but my favorite book ever written was was um, post-war, well, my favourite non-fiction, post-war, just a history of Europe in the decades post the Second World War. And I'm now reading a one he wrote a few years ago called Ill Fares the Land, just about kind of the state we're in and the kind of uh, how we re-establish pluralist social democratic structures. So I think he'd be a fascinating person to have along. Um, the second, my big sister, Siobhan, who moved to California about 25 years ago and doesn't get home that often, but she was home for work last week and I had the joy of picking her up in Ballina and driving her to Galway and chatting on the way and get her, seeing as if it's at my wishes, I can click my fingers and have her over and the very third, good. I don't know, I'll come back. We'll okay. do it in part two. No problem at all.
0: Claire Hannah. it was an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. I think you've been very open and honest in all your answers um, and thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. And I hope our listeners will um, take something away from us. And um, just on a final note, if you all do did enjoy uh, this podcast, a like and a retweet would be much appreciated.
1: Yep, absolutely. And I must say, I'm I, yep. I, I really enjoy podcasts. I've about five or six on regular rotation and subscription. And yours is definitely on that now. So much appreciated,
0: Claire. Thank yeah. you very much. Take care, folks. Thank you.